Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com The Fun Factory, written and read by Chris England. Chapter 34. The Wow Wows. Just as I was working my devious scheme to land myself a berth on the ship to America, Mr. Walpink's great plot to topple the governor from his perch on the topmost rung of the musical ladder came tumbling down around his ears. Pink stormed into the fun factory one afternoon, is how we heard it, to beard the mighty lion in his den. He was fuming, and as soon as he caught sight of Carno's innocently inquiring expression, he blew his top. "'You have shut me out of every theatre in the country, sir. Damn me if I know how you've done it!' But I ask you, is it fair? Is it honest? Is it reasonable? Is it reasonable, Mr Pink? Is it reasonable to approach a man's employees and try to bribe them to break a legally binding contract with him? Carner wore a chilling half-smile and a frisson of fear crackled around the fun factory, flitting like ball lightning between all those listening in, some of whom, maybe all, had taken Pink's money. The governor knew. He knew. Somehow... Pink spluttered, caught out. Somehow you have done this thing, and I tell you squarely that I regard it as conduct unbecoming a gentleman, an artist, and a fellow wa-wa-wa-water rat. With that, he turned on his heel and left, accompanied by the sound of his own footsteps, and his challenge to Carno's supremacy, not that it ever amounted to a very great deal, was at an end. What Carno had done, quite simply, was let it be known by all the theatre owners and managers that Pink was planning to deal with that if they ever booked in a sketch by a Wall Pink company, they would never again see a Carno outfit on their premises. And how did he know which ones were listening favourably to Pink's overtures? Why, George Craig told him, of course, George Craig, who was so ostentatiously sacked and then quickly snapped up by Wall Pink, made privy to all his plans and then returned to the governor's welcoming embrace. The matter is in hand, he'd said, hadn't he? "'You have to get up pretty early to put one over on the governor,' I remarked to Stan when we heard about this. "'What time?' Stan said. Now, Carno had any number of shows in his locker that would have had America rolling in the aisles. There was Jimmy the Fearless for a start-off. That was practically a love poem to the place. There was good old Mummingbirds, of course, which had been playing successfully over there for at least four years. But no. Carno had got it into his head that America was positively teeming with secret societies, and so he had devised a new piece in which a fellow is put through all sorts of ridiculous trials at a campsite by a river in order to gain entry to one. He named it The Wow Wows, a little dig at the water rats and the delicious memory of Wall Pink's exasperated stuttering. And Pink got his revenge eventually. You remember I mentioned the very first Royal Command performance in 1912, and the notable absentees on that prestigious occasion, Carno amongst them. Well, guess who was one of the producers charged with booking the acts by their majesties? King Rat, Mr. Wow Wow Wall Pink himself. The main character in the Wow Wows, fortunately for Charlie, was a version of the stock posh buffoon Archibald Binks. Sid had gamely devised no end of ghastly puns and silly business which Charlie could slavishly copy, and it was just as well, because Charlie wasn't exactly throwing himself into rehearsals with a will. He had fallen into a black mood, listless, not taking care of himself, not shaving, turning up once for work in carpet slippers and the trousers from his pyjamas under his coat. 
We'd all seen this before, of course, when he was pining for Hetty, and again after his disappointment in Warrington. I knew what was getting him down this time, of course. Poor Alf Reeves was tearing his hair out at Charlie's performance. The American tour was a big deal for him. I don't think I'd realised how perilously close his relationship with the Governor had come to breaking point. If you think the Governor was not perfectly capable of being a fellow's best man and then sacking him before the same summer was out, then I haven't described him well enough. In short, Alf needed a hit. Take Charlie to the pub, snap him out of it, he'd say, and I would dutifully make the offer, but he wasn't to be tempted, of course. I, on the other hand, was in mighty fine fettle. Stan, Mike and I chatted excitedly about America, and how grand it was all going to be, how much we looked forward to it all. Added to this, Tilly was exhibiting a definite thawing towards me, and from time to time she would join us in the pub after work as part of the gang, almost like the old days. Of course, once we were there, we invariably talked about whatever could be the matter with Charlie, but it was a step in the right direction. On the Saturday evening before we were to leave, I headed up to the Enterprise in a fine mood to collect my last wage packet in the King's Pans Sterling. Charlie Bell and Freddie K. Jr. were walking up Cold Harbour Lane with me as we'd just travelled up from Streatham on the same tram. "'I wish to God I were going with you,' Freddie kept saying. "'I've had about a bellyful of theatre administration, I'm telling you.' "'Maybe your father knows what he's doing,' Charlie consoled him. "'It's as well to have a trade of sorts that you can fall back on.' "'Exactly,' Freddie said heatedly. "'I'd like to have it to fall back on, "'not to be stuck actually bloody doing it fifty-two weeks of the year.' "'He had the supers to deal with over at the fun factory, "'and Charlie went along to keep the lad company, "'so we went our separate ways at the corner of the street, "'and I sauntered over towards the pub. "'I didn't make it there, though. "'Halfway across the road I glanced up, "'and there, leaning on the big outside windowsill "'with a tankard in hand, was the man Molden. "'I stopped in mid-stride. "'It was definitely him.' I'd have recognised that nose anywhere. I prepared to take to my heels, but just then he spotted me. There! he bellowed, pointing straight at me. To my horror, three other burly fellows also set down their drinks and began to give chase. He'd brought some mates with him. Or maybe they were second mates, or stewards, or bandsmen, who knows. I didn't hang about to find out, I just legged it as fast as I could, back down Cold Harbour Lane. Molden and his chums were quite sprightly for big lads, and I was still hampered by my painful knee. I realised quite quickly that I wasn't going to make it back to the crowded hubbub of the Brixton Road, where the dozens of eyewitnesses might have given them pause, so when I saw my chance I ducked down a side alley between a couple of shops. I stayed still in the shadows there, and I heard the clatter of four big pairs of boots as they rushed by. I tiptoed back up to the street end of the alley and peeked out with a single eye. I thought I might be able to double back to the sanctuary of the Enterprise before they worked out where I was. No such luck, though. They'd reached the corner of the block and then stopped, realising that I'd given them the slip. Now they were coming back towards me, checking each entrance as they came. I retreated down the alleyway to seek refuge, but sadly the outlook was less than promising. The alley opened out into a square backyard shared by two shops. The walls were at least eight feet high, certainly too high for me to scale quickly, and there were some rubbish bins which would perhaps give me cover for about four seconds, maybe five. I started to drag the bins to the back wall to use them as a leg up, but it was hopeless. "'Here's our rabbit, lads!' came a shout. I turned to face them as they walked slowly into the yard, enjoying the anticipation of the mayhem to come. Molden's pals spread out behind him to either side. Two of them had something hanging from their hands, little ugly-looking weapons like little black cloth bags of shot. One fellow was clearly going to be relying on his bare hands, which were absolutely massive, while Molden himself had got hold of a piece of wood about two feet in length. "'Mr. Molden,' I said nonchalantly, and his eyebrows shot up when he realised I knew his name. "'Brought your sisters with you, I see.' 
This brought a growl from the largest of the monsters behind. I tried the only spin of the dice I could think of. I'm sure your employers at the Union Castle line will be most interested to hear how you spend your leisure time, I said. Molden's eyes narrowed as he took that in. I knew more about him than he thought I did. But then he smiled, a nasty, mean-spirited smile which spread out between his grotesque, twin-globed nose. You ain't going to be telling him anything, he sneered. Is he, boys? His cohorts growled their agreement. I suspected this wasn't the first beating they'd worked on together. They were a nice, cohesive unit. Let me tell you what we were thinking of, Mulden drawled nastily, tap-tap-tapping the palm of his hand with his piece of wood. Please, I said, all politeness. We thought we might start on your leg. Not the one which so unfortunately was broken by that there footballer. No, not that one. The other one. The good one. I smiled and nodded, affecting a casualness which I did not feel. This was going to be awful. Then perhaps we'll start on your face. Your face is by way of being your fortune, after all, Mr. Actor Man. I sighed. America, that's what I was thinking, wistfully, just at that moment. It was almost as if I could see the coastline of the new world drifting slowly away from me, further and further into the distance. Shall we, gentlemen? Molden said, and his burly chums hunched forward, eager for the action to begin. Molden took a step towards me. I balled my fist, resolved to get a few good shots in at that great hooter before they took me down. He swung his wooden bar back, ready to lunge, and then... Footsteps, blessed footsteps, hurrying down the alley towards us, and a whistle. The sailors turned and parted so that I could see that salvation had arrived in the shape of a couple of police constables, who were galloping breathlessly down the narrow passageway, backed by a number of interested local citizens. "'Now then,' cried the older of the two officers, "'what's going on here, then?' "'Nothing,' Molden muttered. "'Just some old friends having a friendly chat, is all.' "'I assure you, officers, that it was very far from friendly. These gentlemen intended to do me serious harm.' "'Oh, oh, is that so?' said the senior constable. "'What, this?' "'No, no,' said Molden, dropping his makeshift club. His chums followed his lead and let their weapons fall to the ground. "'It's all a misunderstanding.' "'It's a very serious business, that's what it is,' said the younger constable, pushing the end of his truncheon up against the end of Molden's nose, which was a touch I very much approved of. "'Even so, no actual harm seems to have been done, "'so I'm inclined to let you be on your way "'unless this gentleman insists on taking the matter further. "'Do you, sir?' "'I held the moment, ever the professional, and then said grandly, "'No, you may release them.' "'I had no more desire to traipse down to the police station "'than Molden and his mates had, "'and besides, I had recognised PC Charlie Bell "'and PC Freddie Carno Jr., "'as well as the uniforms from Jailbirds, "'so I judged that all in all "'we might have been greeted with some puzzlement "'once we got there.' "'Molden slunk past me and down the alley "'towards the street. "'As he did so, he leaned over to me, "'his beery breath filling my perfectly formed nostrils, "'which must have been such a provocation to him, "'and he said, "'Tell Sid he still owes me, right?' "'Once out on the street again,' Charlie and Freddy sternly watched the sailors on their way, tapping their truncheons against their palms in the approved manner. Once we were sure that they were gone, we burst out laughing, patting each other on the back, and positively panting with relief. "'You two are absolute lifesavers,' I gasped as we headed back towards the fun factory. "'What did they want?' Freddy asked. "'I don't know,' I dissembled. "'Money?' "'It's a good job it were dark down there,' Charlie grinned. "'I'm not sure these suits had passed muster in broad daylight.' I went into the Enterprise then, while Freddy and Charlie returned to the fun factory. 
The Carnot's home pub was quiet, as most of the performers would still be on stage at that time of the evening. Our company, of course, rehearsing the wretched wow-wows by day, were there early, drowning their sorrows. Charlie Chaplin was there, sitting by himself in a corner, nursing a glass of port and smoking a cigarette, with all the cares of the world on his shoulders. He looked up at me as I entered the room, and I saw no hint of surprise in his eyes at seeing me unharmed. Alf Reeves grabbed my arm. "'Look at him,' Alf whispered, glancing over at our morose lead comedian. "'Whatever is the matter?' "'Maybe he doesn't think much of the wow-wows,' I said. "'It's not just that,' Alf said. "'Have a word with him. See what you can find out, will you? There's a good lad.' Alf thrust a pint into my hand, and I wandered over to Charlie's table. The dark, purple eyes flicked up at me as I sat, and then down into the port glass again. "'Evening, Charlie,' I began brightly. "'You'll never guess who I just bumped into outside.' "'Go on. Who?' he mumbled into his drink. "'Mr. Molden, our heckling chum.' Charlie looked up sharply at this. "'Oh, yes,' I went on. "'He and three of his pals seemed quite intent on rearranging my features, "'said something about breaking my other leg. "'I don't suppose you would happen to know anything about that, would you?' Charlie looked genuinely appalled. "'No, I... you, you must believe me, Arthur. I would never... I mean... "'How awful! How did you... I mean, how did you escape them?' A little help from the local constabulary, I said, taking a sip of beer. Good Lord! Charlie was distraught. I glanced over to the far end of the bar, where Freddie and Charlie Bell were now gleefully reliving their daring rescue. I considered that I would have to repay that favour somehow, and a delicious idea struck me. Hey, Alf! I sang out. You know what Charlie says would cheer him up? No, what? Alf said eagerly. If Freddie were to join the American company, you could fix that, couldn't you? And you were saying yourself only the other day that we were a trifle under strength. I could ask the governor, certainly, Alf mused. Would that cheer you up, Charlie? I gave Chaplin a nudge in the ribs, and he gave Alf a thin smile and half a nod. Right, Alf said, and he trotted straight out of the pub, energised, leaving half his pint still rocking in the glass on the bar there. Are you sure, Charlie said? I mean, is Freddy going to be any good? Well, I said, raising my glass, what do you care? That's right. Charlie winced. He can be bloody terrible for all I care. He slumped back into the same miserable posture he'd been in when I first arrived. I knew what he was thinking, of course. It wasn't just about missing out on the American tour. He was wondering how he was going to explain it away afterwards and still keep his job with Carno. I leaned over and hissed into his ear. You don't have to care, but if Alf should manage to pull this off, you can still be pleased for the lad. Got that? I went back to the bar. Sid Chaplin and most of his company had just come in from their evening's performances, and he saw me leaving Charlie in his miserable stew. His antennae twitched, and he planted himself squarely in my way. "'Now listen,' Sid began. "'You leave him alone, do you hear?' I grabbed the front of his jacket and pulled him close. "'Mr. Molden sends his regards,' I snarled. "'He's looking for you,' he says. "'Him and his friends.' Sid went white, and I let go of him, straightening his lapels where I'd crumpled them in my fists. I wasn't sure— but I thought Sid was as surprised and shocked as Charlie had just been. Maybe those sailors weren't actually lurking for me after all. Maybe they were looking for him. Interesting. Shortly afterwards, Alf returned from his chat with the governor and whispered a few words in Freddy Jr.'s shell-like. The lad sprang to his feet with a yelp, beaming all over his chops, and Stan and Mike jumped up too and began to clap him on the back. I watched as Freddy pushed through the ever-growing throng over to where Charlie was sitting and pumped his hand gratefully. And Freddy was coming to America. Chapter 35. Ship Ahoy. 
It was a happy and excited company which gathered at Euston Station for the boat train to Liverpool, none more so than Freddie Carno Jr., who was embarking not only on his first transatlantic voyage, but also on a whole new career as a performer. The momentous decision had been taken too late for him to have even one single rehearsal, but we would be working on the show during the six-day crossing, so we'd be able to bed him in. Freddie had decided to perform under the name Fred Westcott rather than Carno, for fear of American audiences expecting to see the great man himself and asking for their money back. On paper, at any rate the paper that Alf Reeves was clutching in his fist as he counted up the big pile of trunks and bags on the platform alongside the luggage van, our party was 16 strong. There were three married couples, Alf Reeves himself and lovely Amy Minister were one, then there was George and Emily Seaman and Fred and Muriel Palmer. There was a trio of well-seasoned senior Carno troopers that I didn't know all that well, namely Albert Williams, Frank Melroyd and Charles Griffiths, and Albert Austin, who I knew from Jailbirds and Jimmy the Fearless. There were the four musketeers, myself, Stan, Mike and young Freddie, and there was Tilly Beckett. There was also, naturally, our number one comedian, Chaplin C., who was still unaccounted for. I knew why, of course, but I kept an eye out for him. I thought the phrase, I'll finish you, was pretty unambiguous, but you never know, dear. Alf shooed us all aboard, much like a mother hen would if poultry travelled by locomotive transportation, watching all the while for Charlie to make one of his trademark dashes down the platform. Albert Austin, who was under the impression that the sun shone from Charlie's nether regions, was the last to give up hope entirely, and he stepped into the carriage as we moved off. Never mind, Alf, we consoled Reeves. He'll get the next one for sure. Although I knew perfectly well that he wouldn't. We arrived later that day at Liverpool Docks and got our first look at our home for the next week or so. It was the RMS Lusitania, no less, one of the mighty Cunard liners that plied the transatlantic route to New York. Phew, that first sight of her towering above us, her four mighty funnels thrusting into the autumn sky. Most of us stopped and gazed up, our mouths open. Even those hardened old pros George Seaman and Frank Melroyd, who'd been to the States before, and who'd been telling us how hard it was touring that massive continent, well, they pushed their hats back on their heads and admitted to a touch of awe. And if that was not excitement enough, even better news awaited us once Alfred ushered us up the gangplanks and into the belly of the mighty vessel. For in exchange for an agreement to perform entertainments in the evenings for the first-class passengers, we were to be permitted to count ourselves amongst their number. First class to New York. Once we had become accustomed to the splendour of our accommodation, the sumptuous cabin Stan and I were sharing had two bedrooms and a lounge and as much floor space and furniture as my old family house in Cambridge. We explored the gangways and staircases, the ballrooms and the dining rooms, and the viewing platforms like kids in a sweet shop. No, a sweet factory. If this was indeed to be the start of a new chapter in my life, then I could hardly wait to read the rest of the book. As the time to make steam approached, we got word that Alfred scurried back to the railway station in a cab to see if Charlie was on the last possible train from London, but I didn't give that possibility much thinking time. There was too much else to see, and stewards to bring me a glass of champagne and a bowl of strawberries to eat while I watched the crowds of well-wishers gathering on the quayside to wave the Lusitania off. After a few minutes I strolled outside and leaned on the rail, looking down at the throng, feeling rather grand. A whisper of petticoat and a familiar perfume, and I had company. "'Remind you of anything?' Tilly said, leaning on the rail beside me. "'Of course,' I said. "'The good old won't detain you. "'You know, I thought that contraption was the size of a real ship "'until I stepped onto this beast. "'She's impressive, isn't she?' "'Wonderful,' Tilly said, her eyes sparkling as she smiled at me. "'Just be careful not to throw up on anyone down below,' I warned, "'or else you'll be out on your neck like your friend... "'Angeline,' she laughed. "'You remember that fellow with the top hat? "'He was most put out.' 
"'I think he'd brought his own hat, if I remember her right,' I said, and we both laughed. There was a pause then, amiable enough, but with a hint of awkward matters still left unspoken between us. Perhaps now we could clear the air. "'So, we're going to America,' I said, just like back then. "'Yes,' she said. "'We had such plans, didn't we, as I recall, back then?' "'We did,' I said, remembering the elaborate story that we had concocted around our insignificant super-characters. "'I wish we could turn back the clock.' Calendar, she said. You want to turn back the calendar if you want to go back that far. Turning back the clock will take an age. Right you are, I said. What I meant was, I wish that in Warrington, when Charlie and Sid blew the whistle on us, that I had left with you, chosen you rather than Carnos. You said that in Paris, she said. That was why I came back to London, because of what you said in Paris. Do you remember? Always and only. There's only ever been you, Tilly. And then you were so bitter suddenly, so cruel, after my audition that day. I know, I said, I know. I wish I could take it back. Could I? She looked out over the wharves, her expression unreadable. I ploughed on. Freddy told me, you see, just that day, just that afternoon, what an audition with the governor actually meant, and I found I couldn't bear the thought. Of me and Carno together, she finished. Give me some credit, Dando. Every showgirl knows what an audition with Carno is supposed to consist of, supposed by him, at any rate. So, what, you mean... Well, there are ways and ways to play a scene like that. You can play it his way and trust him to be a man of his word. Or... or what? The trick is, you see, to make him feel like you could do whatever he asks, if only he could help you with what you want, and once he's taken care of that, well then, all things are possible. But possible is not the same thing as going to happen right now. Are you saying you didn't actually... Are you saying you actually want to know? No, no, I don't want to know, I said emphatically. It is none of my business. What I want to do is apologise unreservedly for my actions that afternoon outside the fun factory and reiterate in the strongest possible terms whatever I said in Paris that made you come back to London in the first place. Tilly looked at me for a long moment. I watched as the sea breeze caught the curls of her blonde hair and blew a couple of strands into the corner of her mouth. She brushed it back in place. Well, she said, with the most marvellous smile I had ever seen in my life. That's all right, then. Apology accepted. We hovered on the very edge of an embrace for a long moment, but in the end both turned back to the rail and looked down again. It seemed to an inexperienced seafarer's eye like mine that some more or less final preparations were being made and that departure was actually imminent. The crowd lining the quayside was the densest it had been, and handkerchiefs were being waved and dabbed to tearful eyes. This tour of America feels like a fresh start, doesn't it? I said. New world, all that. Hmm, she agreed. Perhaps it could be a fresh start for us, too. For us, too. For us, too. Too. I'd like that, Tilly said eventually, slipping her arm in mine and sliding closer along the rail. You know what the best thing about this magnificent ship is? No? Well, now, you know that all the other ladies in our company are married ladies. Amy, of course, now, and Emily, and Muriel. So they are. Which means that I have no one to share with. I have one of these marvellous, luxurious cabins all to myself. Just rattling about in there I am. Hardly know which chair to sit in first. Is that so? Perhaps you'd like to take a look later. My heart skipped. I would like that, I said. Then that settled, Tilly said, and laid her head on my shoulder, as she had on the won't detainer all those long months ago. And just for a moment there, just at that very moment, do you see it? Let's just hold on to that, stretch it out as far as it will go. Just at that precise moment, 
Everything was working out perfectly. How long did that last, do you think? Is that Alf down there? Tilly suddenly said, breaking from me. Whatever is he doing? Down on the quayside I could indeed now see Alf Reeves. Beside him an ominous pile of Carno trunks was accumulating, dumped on the dock by fast-moving ship hands. A minute later Stan was there too, and then Frank Melroyd, and then in a rush the rest of the Carno troop was scurrying down the gangplank onto the dock, with bags and loose clothing stuffed under their arms. Alf was inching along the ship, looking up at the passengers arrayed as we were along the rail for departure. He caught sight of the two of us, and suddenly began beckoning furiously. "'We'd better see what's what,' I said, with a sinking feeling in the pit of my stomach. "'You don't want a sinking feeling, not when you're on board a ship.' Tilly nodded, her mouth set grimly. We found our way through the crowd to the shipboard end of the gangplank and hurried down onto the quay. Alf strode towards us and turned us bodily around to usher us back. "'Go get your things and then step off as quick as you can. They're leaving in about ten minutes,' he cried. "'Why?' I shouted. "'What's happening?' "'We're not going.' "'Not going?' I yelled frantic. "'Why not?' "'Not without Charlie Chaplin,' Alf said. "'He's not here yet, so we have to take another boat.' "'What?' I howled. "'We can go without him, surely to God!' "'No,' Alf insisted. "'He's the number one, and we have to wait for him.' "'But what if he's decided not to come?' I said. "'We can manage without him. "'Stan is just as good. "'He's understudied the whole piece, "'and at least he's been trying. "'Let Stan take over.' "'The other members of the company had gathered around us, "'and there was a murmur of encouraging assent to this plan.' To be honest, I'd already prepared this argument in my head, but I'd not planned to be having this conversation until we were well underway to New York, or even there. Alf was adamant, however. No, we're making other arrangements. Once we know what's happened to Charlie, he said. Listen, Alf, I said, trying to sound as reasonable as I could. Why do we not go now, on the Lusitania here? At this there was a sigh from the assembled ranks, who had seen the trappings of luxury and had them snatched from their grasp and leave a message for Charlie to make his own way as soon as he can. Is that not the sensible option? Yes, let's go back on board, said Frank Melroyd, turning to look for his drunk. He was not alone in this. Even Amy looked ready to defy her new-minted husband if there was a chance to regain the use of those gold-plated taps. I really think we should wait for Charlie, you know, said Albert Austin, the crawler, and Alf jumped in to stamp his authority on the discussion. Arthur, Tilly, go and get your things, right now, or leave them on there. I don't care which, but the company is not travelling today. I am making other arrangements. Understood? Tilly stared at him for a beat, and then turned and ran up the gangplank to fetch her belongings. I glanced from her retreating figure to Alf and back again. But, I said, but me no buts, Alf shouted. Run! And so, shortly afterwards, we all sat on the quayside on our travelling trunks, watching the lovely, the gorgeous, the impossible, as it turned out, dream that was a first-class crossing on the Lusitania, ease out of Liverpool docks and steam away into the distance. All around us the crowds cheered, hats were waved, and a brass band played a happy farewell, and we sat, our chins in our hands, thinking of what might have been. If Charlie had sauntered up then, at that very moment, I believe he would have been torn limb from limb. It was dark by the time Alf returned from the booking office. Finding alternative passage for a party of sixteen was not proving an easy matter, and we were obliged to traipse off glumly for a miserable supper and a night in a cramped hotel, four in a room, and Tilly sharing with the Palmers. So much for our fresh start, I thought, as I lay awake listening to Mike Asher snoring and wondering how my scheme would play out. It was only when we were all back at Liverpool Lime Street Station the next morning that we realised we had lost Charles Griffiths. We discovered later that he had bedded down for a bit of an afternoon kip in his luxurious first-class cabin. When he awoke, he was well on his way to New York without us. 
The purser was evidently most agitated, since Griffiths was occupying a first-class cabin on the understanding that the Carno company would be performing regular entertainments along the way, and now there was only him. Griffiths was extremely sanguine about the situation, however, and said that he would happily honour the obligation to work his passage, and he did. "'I just did a load of Gus Elan songs,' he explained when we caught up with him. "'I knew him. I've heard him often enough. "'Went down a storm, I did. Why wouldn't I? "'He's a copper-bottomed guarantee, his old Gus.' Alfred dragged us all back to the station, and it was there he outlined the new plan he'd been able to make, and the groans when we heard it. "'Dear, oh dear!' "'We have a passage booked on another ship,' he announced. "'The RMS Cairnrona, leaving from Southampton.' "'What?' went up the cry of dismay from all throats. I have wired to Charlie to meet us there, and we shall travel by train first to Birmingham, then to Reading, and then on to Southampton. It's the cheapest way, because it means not carting all this stuff across London. So let's make the best of it, shall we, and head for Platform 4. There was a decidedly mutinous muttering, but the company began to shuffle off. Alf grabbed my sleeve and pulled me to one side. Not you, Arthur, he whispered. I need you to do something for me. Oh, yes, I said. Here, he said, thrusting a ticket into my hand. I'll take care of your bags. You go back to London. Find Charlie for me and get him onto that boat. I've wired the little bastard time and time again and he hasn't replied. I can't think what he's playing at. I could, of course. What if he doesn't want to come? I said. Bring him anyway, I've said, with a dangerous look in his eye. You can persuade him if anyone can or else I've missed my guess. I gave my dream scenario one last go. We can manage without him, you know, Alf. Stan is just as good. And how's America going to know the difference? They don't know Charlie Chaplin from a bar of five boys chocolate, do they? You're right, lad, you're right, Alf sighed, looking tired. But if Carno finds out I've left on an American tour without my number one, then that's it for me. I've pushed my luck once too often as it is, and on your behalf more than once, I might say. So I'm asking you to do this for me. Can I count on you? He was gripping my forearm now and wearing the look of a desperate man. I hated to see him that way, so what else could I say? Yes, Alf, you can. I'll find the little bastard and I'll bring him. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Chapter 36. Always leave them laughing. As I travelled back to London, having not expected to return there for at least six months, I had plenty of time to consider how the land lay. 
even though I was disappointed that my scheme to leave Chaplin behind had come to grief, and was mortified at missing out on a first-class ride on the Lusitania as a consequence. Nonetheless, I found myself beaming happily as the Midlands rolled by outside the carriage window. It was Tilly. Tilly was the reason for my sunny mood. And in the end, what did it matter how we got to the States and who else came on the trip? The important thing was that we would be together again. Charlie's name hadn't even come up in our reconciliatory conversation the day before, and she had not seemed at all agitated that he might not make the ship in time, unlike Albert Austin, who had looked close to tears. So while I'd much, much rather he stayed behind with his career in ruins, if he absolutely had to come with us to America in order that we could go to America, so be it. I could bear it. Once I reached the hustle and bustle of the capital once more, time was not on my side, so I made all haste to the address on the Brixton Road where Charlie lived with his brother. The chaplains rented a top-floor flat above a parade of shops. There was a butcher's and a baker's, but disappointingly nowhere that I could see to buy custom-made candle holders. As I approached, I found myself on the wrong side of the road, so I paused on the pavement and looked across, trying to judge where number 16 was to be found while awaiting a break in the traffic. I had my target in sight and was just about to step out when I glanced on my left and got the shock of my life. There, leaning indolently against a wall, flicking through a newspaper, was none other than the creature Molden. Really, this was too much. He had not spotted me, fortunately, so I quickly retreated to a safe distance up the road and found a vantage point from which I could spy on him. What was he doing there? Every few seconds he would glance up from his reading, if indeed he was actually reading, and he'd eye the doorway opposite the one which I had determined led to the chaplain's flat. He was keeping watch, that's what he was doing. It defied belief that he could be expecting me to turn up, so he must have been waiting for Charlie or for Sid. Then, with a heavy sigh, I spotted one of his cohorts, the fellow with the enormous hands a little further along, also keeping watch. He was sporting a rather natty beret, very nautical. I considered for a moment, and decided that the fact that they were not expecting me would not for a moment prevent them from attempting to resume our last encounter where it had left off. Damn it all! I needed to get in to see if Chaplin was at home, and there was precious little time before I would have to make for Waterloo and the boat train. What was I to do? I inched carefully along the pavement towards Chaplin's address, taking cover wherever I could find it, falling in step behind a fat gentleman for a few strides, then ducking into a grocer's a few doors down to pretend to shop. An ailing white motor van bearing the legend Pear's Soap oozed and parked along the street towards me. As it drew level with me, I nipped out into the road and trotted alongside it until I was level with Chaplin's front door, which happily was ajar, and then I darted into the darkened corridor. I made it unseen and quickly ran up the stairs to the top flat where I pounded on the door. There was no response from inside. I banged again and again and shouted Charlie's name, but to no avail. I gave up and sat on the stairs to think, and after a couple of minutes I realised I was being watched. At the foot of the stairs was a child, a raggedy street urchin, looking back up at me. "'You his friend, are you?' "'Yes,' I said, but he's not in. "'He's in there, all right,' said the urchin. "'He just doesn't want to see nobody, is all.' "'Is that right?' I said. "'Yeah,' the kid said. "'He comes out for smokes. I fetches them for him, don't I?' "'That's why you're waiting?' "'Right.' "'Well, perhaps I'll wait with you.' "'Now skin off my nose,' said the child, and we sat in companionable silence for a while. I lit a cigarette, gave one to the kid, and checked my watch with increasing anxiety, reckoning that there was barely time to make it down to Southampton and catch up with the rest of the company. I was damned if I was going to miss the boat as well. "'You in an hurry, are you?' the urchin asked, languidly puffing out a cloud of smoke. "'Somewhat,' I said. "'Only if he wants to get in and see him, there's a key, just there, on top of the door frame. 
I leapt to my feet and felt with my fingertips, and blow me, the kid was right. I saluted him, opened the door, and went in. It was dark in there, and didn't smell especially pleasant. The curtains were drawn against the world, and on the kitchen table there was a lump of bread and some cheese, both of which were rock-hard and bore signs of mould. The parlour seemed cosy enough, with a pair of matching chunky armchairs arranged beside a fireplace, which didn't seem to have been home to a lit fire for a while. I found my way along to a bedroom and eased the door open gingerly. And there I found him, curled up on top of his bed, his knees drawn up to his chest. Piles of cigarette ends littered the floor, along with several empty bottles which had contained intoxicating spirits of one kind or another. The room smelled of a pub the morning after a busy night before, at the end of a really busy week. I drew closer to the bed, trying to see if Charlie was breathing, because I suddenly had the ghastly apprehension that he might have done something foolish. No, I could see a shallow rise and fall there, and a quiver of his stubbly lips. Drunk, not dead, thank goodness for that. I reached out a hand to shake him, but suddenly stopped short. Here was a thought. Chaplin. Dead. He wasn't, but he could have been. He could very well have been. He'd clearly embarked upon a dramatic decline, and if no one arrested it, there could surely only be one end. I sat heavily on a chair as ramifications rushed in, clamouring for attention, clouding my head, drowning my reason. Revenge! Revenge for all he had done to me! The dirty tricks, the double dealing, stealing my girl behind my back, smashing my knee, queering my pitch with Carno. And then there would be a clear sunlit run ahead, with Tilly, and with Carnos in America, without this little bastard gumming up the works. Revenge! Revenge was here, within my grasp, if only... I wouldn't even have to do anything, would I? Just turn my back, that would be enough. Leave now and say I couldn't find him, and let nature, his self-dramatising, depressive nature, take its course. The outcome wasn't certain, though. I feverishly reasoned. Someone else could find him in time. Sid. Sid could be back at any moment. I could. Could I pick up a pillow and finish him? The boy had seen me, but boys could be bought. Molden was outside, but maybe that would be a good thing. Maybe he would even be blamed. I stood slowly, leaned over, looked down at his grubby face, caught a whiff of his foul breath. That frail frame curled to protect itself from a cruel world. As I loomed over it, all I could think of, marvelling suddenly, was the power it contained. I thought back to the times I had been with Chaplin on stage, and considered then what I had seen without the resentment and the competitiveness and the bitterness. Some of the finest moments of my life, when the audience was eating out of the palm of my hand and the power coursed through my tingling veins, had been shared with him, with Charlie Chaplin. I saw in that moment that I would never, could never, match him, and saw too, I think, what the world would miss if he were to expire theatrically, self-indulgently in this pit. "'Hey, Charlie,' I said, taking myself by surprise. "'Wake up, man!' He did not stir, so I began to clap my hands together as I called him up from the depths of his drunken stupor. "'Hey, Charlie, come on, up you get!' Slowly he roused himself and looked around to see where the noise was coming from. When he saw me, he squinted, as if trying to make his eyes focus. Then he recognised me and scrambled into a sitting position, pressing himself back against the headboard to try and get as far from me as possible. "'What?' he cried anxiously. "'What are you doing here?' "'I've come to get you,' I said." He began to tremble, as though I had just confirmed his worst apprehensions. "'Why?' he stammered. "'I did what you said, didn't I? Didn't I?' He had the look of a man not sure whether he was awake or still dreaming a nightmare. 
I looked at the state he was in, unshaven, filthy, hollow-eyed. I supposed he hadn't eaten in days, and had subsisted only on drink and cigarettes. What a depression he had fallen into, and all because of me. It was all terribly dramatic, of course, and woe is me, but even so, I found myself feeling ashamed. "'Come on, old chap,' I said more kindly. "'I mean to say I've come to get you, to take you to America. Get some things in a suitcase, for goodness sake, and be quick about it. We have a train to catch.' Chaplin looked at me as though I was a creature from another world. I decided to leave him to pull himself together. I went through into the other rooms and opened the curtains, then opened the windows to let some air in. I disposed of his mouldering leftover food and found a dustpan and brush to deal with the fag ends. When I went back into the bedroom, he was still sitting there just as I'd left him. "'What do you mean?' he said, still baffled. "'America! Come on! Chop-chop!' "'But the boat's already left!' "'Aren't you supposed to be? We're going on a different one, and it sails tonight, so get yourself moving, will you?' Chaplin blinked up at me from the bed. "'Why? What made you change your mind?' "'Let's say I decided I'd rather do Alpha good turn than you a bad one. I'll explain on the way, but for now you really must get on with it.' He seemed suddenly to realise that I was neither a figment of his own imagination, nor joking, and leapt from the bed.' He was a whirlwind of activity now, grabbing fistfuls of shirts here, and a violin there, a Latin textbook, if you please, some carpet slippers, what cigarettes he had left, and a packet of lucifers, some ties, a boater, socks, and he stuffed them all, any old how, into his travelling trunk. "'Ready!' he cried, standing to attention. He looked better already. The light had returned to his eyes, and he seemed invigorated once more. "'Good,' I said. "'Let's make tracks.' Chaplin dragged his trunk over to the front door, then snapped his fingers as he remembered something. "'One minute,' he said, scrambling around in the drawer of the bureau until he located a pencil and a scrap of paper. He scribbled on it quickly and then slapped the note on the table. I glanced at it as he did so and saw that it read, "'Off to America. Love, Charlie.' For Sid, of course, which reminded me. "'One slight problem,' I said, as we stepped out onto the landing. "'That unsavoury ginger geezer is loafing about outside. "'I reckon he must be waiting for words with your Sid.' "'Charlie twitched his mouth from side to side, thinking. "'Show me,' he said. "'We tiptoed down to the street door, which was still ajar, "'carrying his trunk between us. "'There, see,' I said, as Charlie peered carefully out. "'And further down that way is his chum, "'the chap with the neckerchief and the beret. See him?' "'Charlie nodded and withdrew into the shadows.' they'd be upon us before we got to the corner. Wait, I have it. He inched back to the door and whistled softly a couple of times. In a few moments we were joined by the street urchin I'd met earlier on. Ah, I know, mister, this youngster said cheerily. Siggies, is it? Not this time, my friend, Charlie said. Look over yonder. You see that fellow? The one with the prize ooter, you mean? Exactly. And you see that chap there with the beret? The urchin nodded. Here's a shilling. Go and tell that one that that one wants to speak to him urgently. The kid flipped the shilling up into the air and caught it deftly. "'You're the boss,' he said, and sauntered out into the street. Charlie watched him go, and after a moment or two his protégé was leading Molden by the arm down the street to our right. Charlie gripped the handle of his trunk, and I grabbed the other end. He was a changed man, a live wire. "'Ready?' he hissed, and I tensed. "'Let's go!' We darted out of the doorway and belted off up the street to the left. We made it to the corner, and Charlie started to turn to find us somewhere to conceal ourselves. But before we could nip out of sight, I saw that Molden had realised he'd been had, and he and his mate were hurrying diagonally across the road towards us. There was no earthly point in hiding now. We just had to run for it, so we pelted straight up the main road. Charlie looked back, and his eyes widened. We were badly hampered by his trunk, and Molden was only a few yards adrift. He was going to catch us for sure. 
Then, blessed relief, I heard the ting-ting of a tram bell warning us to move over, and a northbound tram slid alongside. Gathering the last of my breath, I shouted to Charlie, On! He jumped up onto the tram's backboard. I shoved the trunk up after him and made my own leap, landing there, just on my knees. Blast it, that hurt! Molden's chum in the beret had fallen badly behind, but Molden himself wasn't giving up his quarry so easily. A nasty grin spread beneath that bulbous twin-lobed pitted red nose, and he managed to get a hand on the pole. Next he would pull himself aboard. But before he could, I lashed out a boot at his fingers, crushing them. With a howl he let go his grip and sprawled on the road in a heap, and Charlie and I watched him dwindle into the distance as the tram rattled away up the Brixton Road. We looked at one another then, breathless and sweating, and both began to laugh. We caught the boat train from Waterloo Station with not an inch to spare, Chaplin style, and as the locomotive headed towards Southampton, Charlie seemed to regain a little of himself with every passing mile. Having started the journey looking very much like, well, not to put too fine a point on it, a tramp, he finished it spruced and gleaming like a thoroughgoing dandy. He contrived to shave along the way, which must have taken considerable dexterity, for there was not a scratch on him. So high were his spirits now, from one extreme direct to the other without calling it points in between, that he was not much interested in any explanations from me. He preferred to beam at the passing countryside and burble about America, the land of opportunity. I suppose, in a way, he must have felt like he'd been spared the noose, as he would not now have to invent an explanation for Carner that would enable him to keep his job. He would have to make some sort of excuse to Alf Reeves and the company, but that was small beer by comparison. As we neared our destination, he suddenly leaned over and put his hand on my knee. "'Thank you, Arthur,' he said, with a quite dazzling smile. "'Those teeth. Friends?' "'Friends,' I said, and we shook on it. He just loved doing that, didn't he? And at that moment we were friends, I think, and I was glad I had relented, not just for Alf's sake, but for Charlie's and for mine. After all, I thought, so Charlie Chaplin comes to America with us, What's the worst that could happen? Hint, read his autobiography, and you'll find out. Once at Southampton, we were collected at the dock gates by a functionary of the Thompson line and led to the RMS Cairn on foot. As we made our way along the quay, we found ourselves passing by a steam packet with a lavender grey hull and two red and black funnels. The name on the stern caught my eye. Well, well, I said. How about that? What is it? Charlie said. Wait here a minute, I said. A little way off I could see a starched busybody of a fellow in a braided uniform heading towards us. His white peaked cap bore the same name as the ship, and I put on a gentlemanly air and accosted him before he could drive me away. "'Ahoy!' I said. "'Are you from the Dover Castle there?' "'I am, sir. What is your business?' "'Are you the captain, might I ask?' "'No, sir, I am not. I am Dawkins the purser. Can I help you?' "'Indeed,' I said. "'The purser, is that so?' "'It so happens that I am acquainted with Mr. Turnbull "'from your London office on Fenchurch Street. "'Do you know the gentleman?' "'I do,' said this Dawkins. "'You have a fellow on your boat, name of Molden,' I said. "'What of it?' "'I have a message from him,' I said. "'He wishes you to know that he is retired from the seafaring life, "'effective immediately, and you should take steps to replace him "'as quickly as possible.' "'I see,' said Dawkins, frowning. "'And did he give a reason?' "'He said,' "'I'm sorry to have to say this, Mr. Dawkins, but remember, I am merely the messenger, "'that the ship's purser was an insufferable prig, "'and that he could not bear to spend another moment in his company.' "'Dawkins stiffened, and his face turned a sort of purple colour. "'He also gave me to understand that you would be pleased as punch, "'because this would give you the chance to scour the docks for a young boy more to your taste. "'Does that mean anything to you?' "'The purser's eyes bulged with outrage. 
"'And what is your name, sir, if I might ask?' "'My name,' I said. "'My name is Sidney Chaplin. "'I bid you good day, sir.' "'I left him standing there with steam coming out from beneath his starched white cap "'and rejoined Charlie and our guide, pleased with a very tidy bit of business. "'Shortly we came to the dock where the Ken Rona was berthed, "'and I got my first look at her, a modest little vessel, "'black grey smoke already beginning to billow from her single funnel. "'The Thompson man noticed that I'd stopped "'and retraced his steps with a look of concern. "'Something wrong, sir?' "'Not exactly the Lusitania, is it?' "'He grimaced apologetically. "'Few ships are,' he said. "'Once we joined the rest of the company on board, "'it was plain to see that not everyone "'was as pleased to see Charlie Chaplin "'as Mr Alfred Reeves was. "'Talk about the prodigal. "'He took him and embraced him "'and pinched his face as though checking "'he was flesh and blood "'and not an apparition come to torment him. "'Have you ever seen a mother "'who has mislaid a child, "'exclaiming that when she finds "'the errant infant she's going to tan his hide "'and make him wish he'd never been born, "'but then when the little rogue "'hoves into view, "'it's all hugs and kisses "'and never leave me agains? "'Like that. "'Exactly like that.' At one point, Alf managed to free an arm from this embarrassing display and grabbed me by the hand to offer his heartfelt, if silent, thanks. The rest of the company, however, except for old Charlie Griffiths, who was floating off in the lap of luxury somewhere past Ireland by now, stood and seethed, arms folded, lips pursed, eyes boring holes in the back of the chaplain's skull. I found out why when the welcome party dispersed and I could grab a word with Tilly. "'I don't suppose by any chance we have first-class cabins,' I said. "'There isn't even a first class on this bucket,' Tilly said. "'There's second class and there's third class, but there's no first. "'What's the point of that, I ask you?' "'I see. But it's not so bad, is it?' "'I'll tell you what it is. It's a converted cattle boat, and I'm not even joking.' "'No wonder Charlie got such a muted welcome.' "'Later, as the Cairnrona steamed out into the Solent and on into the English Channel, "'I leaned on the rail and watched England slide by.' I was filled with anticipation, for I had dreamed of travelling to America ever since I had whiled away my time in Cambridge reading the good old Penny Bloods. I had a great sense of well-being all at once, because I felt things had been resolved between myself and Charlie. I had had my victory, but had not, in the end, rubbed his nose in it. I had also, don't forget, scored a point over the creature Molden too. Yes, I had a great feeling of optimism, a feeling that everything was going to turn out fine. I didn't know then that instead of heading to New York, where we were due to perform, we were actually en route to Montreal. Nor did I know that the propeller was going to give way, leaving us adrift for three whole days in the middle of the stormy Atlantic, at the mercy of wind and waves and mal de mer. And I didn't know that my rivalry with Chaplin was destined to erupt into strife, bitterness, alcoholism, ruin and murder. That was all still to come. Tilly joined me and slipped her arm into mine. "'The cabins are not quite so grand as on the Lusitania,' she said, "'but I do still have one to myself. "'Want to take a look?' "'Yes,' I thought. "'This is all going to turn out just fine.' "'Planning for your next trip?' Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.